Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with all of us gathered here at Johns Creek and in sister churches all over the world today. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me or turn on your devices to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. We'll be in Matthew 22 in just a short while. And as you find your way there, let me take an opportunity now to welcome the rest of our church family uh, who uh, is worshiping in the Family Life Center and encourage you as well to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 22 as we prepare for a new study. And on the way there, we want to take a moment to pray. And before we, we open our text and read the scripture, I want to say a word or two as one united family uh, about our neighbors to the west in South Texas. We want to take a moment to offer a word of prayer for them. But more than that, I want to update you on some efforts being um, organized among the sister churches in our network called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. You may have heard me say before or maybe have read in, in a blog that I've written before that in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, we're not set up to be first responders, but when natural disasters like a hurricane uh, come to, to meet uh, those in a particular region, we wait for the first responders who are excellent at what they do to do what they do. And as the waters recede and we begin to know what the particular needs are, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship then organizes and partners with individuals and with churches who are on the ground in that particular location to learn from them what do you need and how can we posture in a way to physically uh, meet some of the needs that you, that you identify. Well, last week I told you that there is a place on our website where you can go right now and learn a little bit more about uh, how we respond. JCBC, our, our habit whenever something like this happens is automatically we send some financial aid through the uh, disaster response arm of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. That's what we do immediately so that monies can be spent on much-needed supplies and materials uh, in the immediate days. But now we have some new information, and that is... Uh, that a sister church and a good friend of mine, Steve Wells, the senior pastor at South Main Baptist Church in Houston, will be organized as an operation center from which to send out teams to go into the various neighborhoods and regions to work on basically muck out teams. That's the name uh, of, of that kind of work where a team will go into a home and remove uh, the mud and the debris so that the family can begin to assess what damages they have and begin the long process of rebuilding. And the CBF and JCBC, we, we partner for the long haul in those, those difficult days that are ahead for them. 
It's our way of loving our neighbors, our way of being present among those who are hurting and struggling. So here's what I want you to do. I want you not only to pray, which we'll do in a moment, um, but I want you to pay attention to our website. In the next couple of days, as needs are being uh, discovered and communicated with our CBF friends, I want you to check our website because we will have on our website an opportunity for you to click and self-identify as someone who is saying, I would like to know more about actually going to be a part of a muck-out team. Now, that, that's not something for everyone. But on that form, you'll, you'll be able to see it asks for just a few basic items of information, name, email, any particular skills that you have, equipment that you may be able to bring. And then we will be able to take that information that we gather from you and communicate with you to let you know as we are told about the needs that come up. So if we stay connected with one another and in communication with one another, we'll be able to posture in a way that puts our prayers into action. And so I'm asking you to continue to pray for those who are hurting and struggling as the waters in some places still um, are uh, waiting to, to recede. On the way there, in the meantime, we do pray. And there was a prayer that was written by a member of the CBF family that many churches around the CBF community are using as a, a part of a unified prayer together. And I want us to begin this time of pastoral prayer with the words that will be spoken among many sister churches this day about the situation there. And then I'll continue um, to ask the Lord's blessing over our time together. So let's take just a moment, both here and in the Family Life Center, to, uh, to bow in prayer. Lord God, creator and sustainer of this earth, hear our cry. Part of your world has been devastated and our hearts are overwhelmed and fainting as we watch those seeking higher ground and shelter. For those who have lost loved ones, bring comfort as only you, Lord God, are able. For those who have lost property and possessions, bring restoration. For the thousands who have lost sleep and worked tirelessly to rescue, restore order, bring supplies, keep utilities safe and running, shelter and homeless, uh, and organize relief, bring deep rest and rejuvenation, we pray. For those who are even now preparing to come alongside your children who suffer during the storm, bring wisdom and strength, bring endurance and resources that we may stay on the task until restoration is complete. From the end of the earth, we will cry to you with our hearts overwhelmed. Lead us to the rock that is higher than we, you, God, are our shelter and refuge, our strong tower. Let us all, those of us who have experienced Harvey and those of us who have watched it unfold, let us all find refuge and trust in the shelter of your wings. And even now, 
as we are mindful, holy God, of those who have gathered here at Johns Creek, as we are mindful of the storms that we may have brought in mind and heart and soul, as we are mindful of the struggles that may be so personal and private that no one ever knows, we lift these up to you as well. For those who are sick and in need of healing, for those who are lonely and sad and in need of an advocate, for those who are afraid, in need of a strong word of hope, we pray that you would be God. Show us how to be your children. Even now, as we open up this text, we pray that you would open our minds and hearts that we may be transformed by good news that changes everything. In the name of Christ, the Lord of all life, we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, if you'll join me and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 36 in just a moment. But first, I need to know if you are aware of the old man who was walking down the country lane. True story. The old man walking down the country lane with his trusted dog and his faithful mule. They were out for a walk, and this, this truck, surprising to him, this truck comes speeding, careening around this corner and knocks all three of them, the old man, his mule, and his dog, into this ditch, tumbling into this ditch, and they're all injured. And and later, the old man decides that he's going to to sue the driver of the truck to reclaim some damages in the aftermath. So they, they go to court. And the man is on the stand being interrogated. And the the defendant has a counselor who is asking questions. And the the attorney for the defendant says to the old man, Sir, I'd like for you to simply answer one question for me. It's a yes or no answer. On the day of the event, at the time of the accident, did you not say that you were perfectly fine? Did you not say that you were perfectly fine on the day of the accident? And the old man said, well, well see, there, there was, I was walking with my dog and with my mule. And the attorney said, nope, nope, sir, with all due respect, just answer the question, yes or no. Is it not true that on the day of the accident you said you're perfectly fine? The old man again said, well, well I was walking with my, my dog. Sir, sir, your honor, would you please instruct the witness To simply answer my question, well, the judge said, clearly clearly the the, the man has something to say to you. He's wanting you to hear something, so just just hear him out. Listen to him. So the man continued. I was walking in the country with my my dog and my mule, and this truck came around, and when the defendant uh, careened around the corner, we went tumbling into this ditch, and we were all very badly hurt. But then the man got out of the truck to come see how we were. And he came and saw that my dog was very injured. It was, he was in a bad shape. So he went back to his truck and he got his gun and shot my dog. And then he saw that my mule had a broken leg. So he shot my mule. Then he said to me, how are you feeling? 
And I said, I'm perfectly fine. Right? <laughs> yeah. See? See, sometimes hearing the whole story makes all the difference. I think the same can be said about our Christian walk, about our journey with our Lord Jesus. Because much of the time we do pretty well living into much of the teachings of Jesus. But do we obey all of them? One day in the life of Jesus, another attorney, another lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question, and this is how it unfolds. Teacher, he said, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, I think that we do pretty well with the first commandment. I mean, at least we, we think we do. We assume we do. We put our priorities into that one, loving God with everything that's in us. We, we, know, we know something about loving God. In fact, most of us would even say that we think one of the primary tasks of religion itself is to somehow equip people to love God with that kind of intensity. I mean, we just spent the entire month of August, didn't we, talking about this very thing. In my sermon series entitled Magnificent Obsession, that's what we were talking about. The whole month we said that worship, if we are to understand the true character and nature of, of Christian worship, is really about this, ordering our life in such a way that daily we are able to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, that we bend in yieldedness before the glory of that God. I mean, we know something about loving God. But that is only half the story. Jesus said there is more. He said a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, well, on these two hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Sometimes I wonder if we do half of the teachings of Jesus well and the other not so well. You know, the older I get and the longer I serve as a pastor, it occurs to me that people are watching us. People, neighbors, are watching us to see if we lend credibility with our lives to back up everything that we say with our words. And when experts who study us tell us that 26% of the nation, 26% of the population no longer associates with any organized religion or any official religion, 26% of the population has chosen none of the above when given the option. That's why we call them the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, right? Well, this... This pastor begins to ask questions 
Like, I wonder if it's partly because they've watched religious people for a very long time do an excellent job loving God. And, and, and we, we offer articulate sermons in some places, I'm, I'm told. We offer sermons with words that we wrap around the mystery and, and we, we lift up glorious songs and they're, they're phenomenal, great music and we do rituals and, and rhythms to our worship way, right? So they watch us love God with everything we can, but then they also at times watch us absolutely neglect the second command to love the most vulnerable and those who have been forgotten and who are lonely and who are, are our neighbors. And it makes me, makes me wonder, does that contribute? Because they see that happening. We wrap wonderful words around the love of God and they see the abject neglect of the love of people and they don't buy it. And neither does Jesus. Which is why I want us to take these next three weeks in the series that we're calling Love My Neighbor. Now you already know, well you kind of know because we saw half of the video, <laughs> that we're in the middle of this bee campaign. You're going to hear a whole lot more about that, but we're trying to equip all of our members with very tangible uh, tools to use. Uh, some instructions on easy ways to connect with people, welcome them in and so forth. That's the thing that we're doing but for the month of September, the thing behind that thing is asking some serious questions about what does it even mean to love my neighbor? So we begin. But the first thing that we have to do as we begin this, this conversation about what it means to really love my neighbor is I want to set a kind of disclaimer out there, maybe put a frame around it, set some scaffolding up, you pick your metaphor, some things that have to be said before the things that get said. And here, here it is. These two commandments that Jesus teaches are really not two commandments, but one is an extension of the other. Now, they are two commandments, I mean, truly. Jesus, when he gives his answer, he reaches back into his uh, Jewish heritage and he yanks forward from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, these two commands to love God with everything that's in you and to love your neighbor. And he, he links them together in a way that is provocative and convicting, right? But if we really understand what Jesus is up to here, he's not saying here are two things you gotta do. He's saying, here's one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do, if you do, you will love your neighbor as yourself. If you have been overwhelmed by the mercy and grace and compassion and love of God, there is something in you that will want to rise up and respond. And those who respond and understand the character of God's love understand that that love has come to us, not just to come to us, but God's love is meant to come through us to those who are around. And so to love God is to love a neighbor. In fact, I'm gonna push it even further today. I'm gonna to push it even further and say, you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. You can't. You can't 
love God without loving your neighbor. You say, well, yeah, of course I can, Sean, because, well, you know, my relationship with God is this kind of spiritual thing. It's, it's kind of invisible. It's in my heart. It's how I feel. And so it, because it's spiritual, then between God and me, well, there's this thing, and I love God. And how I treat others, yes, I know I need to treat them well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But really, they're separate because what I do here doesn't affect how I feel here. But Jesus says, hmm, wrong. That they are not only linked, but they are inseparable. To love God is to love the people God has made. So, Jesus has a little brother, James, who writes a little book, and he takes it even further. Listen to what James says about this idea that we can somehow love God and then somehow ignore the other children that God has. Listen to what he says. He says, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love this one, those who say I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. I'm stick with that for just a moment. I love it when the Bible just puts it right on the nose. Those who say, oh, I love God, but at the same time hate a brother or sister, are liars. It's not that we set out to lie. It's not that we are attempting to be liars. But when we articulate the love of God in a kind of a vertical, this is, yes, I love God spiritually, but we neglect the care and the, the love and service of our neighbor, then we make of our witness a lie. He, he goes on and says, For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, and I love that word, not the suggestion, not the recommendation, not the tip for better living, the commandment that we have, the order from our Lord that we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters. I mean, that's pretty on the nose, y'all. And it's not just on the nose. It's non-negotiable. It doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean we have to be enthusiastic about it at first because there are some for whom it is difficult to love. But if we are to love God, we cannot not love our neighbor. Which raises two truths that I want to put before you today. And I want you to hang on to these two truths. Let it just kind of sit in your heart a little bit. The first truth is this. We love God by loving who lo God loves. We love God by loving who God loves. That's, that's how we love God. By loving who God loves. Why? Because they are God's other children. I remember when I was in uh, Tennessee, we were there about six and a half years or so, and, and the boys were very young, I mean like, like little, and they were kind of in the nursery area, and they would come home from church, and they would have like a verse of scripture memorized that I didn't teach them. Well, they would come home with a song about Jesus or God or creation that, that their mother didn't teach them. And what became clear in those early days was 
Somebody at church is loving my kids. It was Miss Jean and Miss Kim and Miss Ruby who ran the nursery, the, the nursery at the church for decades. They poured love out on, onto these, these kids. And, and it occurred to me, I was there for nearly six and a half years, and they said some nice things to me. I got compliments. I got affirmation. Hey, good sermon, uh, preacher. Hey, nice program. Well done. That was nice. Good leadership. You're doing great. And I felt loved by all those kind of comments. But the truth of the matter was, I never felt more loved by my people than when I knew my people were loving my children. Does that make any sense to you? If you want to reach the heart of a parent, if you want to love the heart of a parent, love their children, because here are these two boys for whom, at the very young age, I would have readily laid down in front of a moving train. Still would. I'd ask them first, what are you doing on the tracks? <laughs> Get off the tracks. You're listening. I, I know you're listening right now. But I would lay down in front of a moving train, and when I meet somebody who's going to love them, they don't know it, but they're loving me. because. And so the good, the good parent, the good parent, God, will put somebody in your life. The good parent will put a person on your path to test you. Yep, I said it. To test the measure of your resolve because God has heard you say, I love you, Lord. I love you. I love you. I worship you. I adore you. God knows that you love God, but God will put someone on your path to test the measure of your resolve. Will your words be backed up with the credibility of your action? Will you love God's other children? Because all through the Old Testament, we have this beautiful record of what God thinks about people who say they love God, but neglect showing compassion and mercy and grace and justice to other children of God. In fact, this is the, the story of all of the prophets. I want you to think for just a moment about the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah's um, witness, we hear the word, of God come to Isaiah, and God has an opinion about worship. He has an opinion about what these people do with this elaborate worship. They've got such a, an elaborate way to come before God and worship. It includes sacrificing bulls and goats and rams, and it's, at the time, beautiful. It's, 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 it's timely. It's, it's what they were supposed to do. You and I sometimes in the 21st century will look back on that kind of thing and see it as primitive and we'll look down on that. But don't forget that one day someone will look back on us and think that using TV screens in worship is primitive. So let's not get too cocky when we look at our ancient sisters and brothers who worship the way they worship. But regardless, God looks at their worship and says, you know what, I have no tolerance for your worship of me if you're not willing to back up what you say in worship with how you treat your neighbors. Listen to how it's put. And, and we're going to use Eugene Peterson's translation of Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 11. Listen to these words. Why this uh, frenzy of sacrifices? God's asking. Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams, and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls and lambs and goats and TV screens and, and bass guitars and pipe organs and, and pastors who talk a lot? 
Don't you think I've had my fill of all? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit, I love this, your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You, you've worn me out. This is God speaking. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you're tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up, clean up your acts, sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong, learn to do good, work for justice, help the down and out, stand up for the homeless, go to bat for the defenseless. Man, that's good stuff. The trouble is everything in that passage that evokes an amen from me is not meant to evoke my celebration, but it's meant to evoke a conviction. Oh my gosh, where is it that I have articulated my love for God but not demonstrated my love for God in the people who are vulnerable, in the people who are needy, in the people who are marginalized, people who are shoved to the side of my own consciousness? Because God says, I have no interest in hearing what you say about your love for me if you're not willing to back up your love for me by how you live with your neighbors that I have put in your life. James and Jesus. See, they come from from this tradition. The ancient prophets... And Jesus reaches back, and he's in that tradition of the ancient prophet who's pointing out these things. And James, his little brother, does the same thing. He says, if you want to know what real religion is, he puts it nice and cleanly in one statement. In James chapter 1, verse 29, listen to what he says. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So we love God, right, by loving who God loves. And some days that's very easy to do. Some days it's very easy to identify who that is. I mean, we say, okay, so who's my neighbor? Who are the ones that God loves? And we say, well, clearly he loves the widows and the orphans and everyone they symbolize, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the weak, the forgotten Right? We, we know that, well, clearly they identify as neighbors who, who God is calling us to love. And maybe babies. Yeah, babies too, down in the nursery. So yeah, maybe I should volunteer down in the nursery. Uh, hint, hint, public service announcement. Those are clear, easy places to identify. That's where we are to love God by loving who God loves. But there are other moments when it's not so easy. Other moments when it's the hardest thing we could possibly do, because can I let you in on a little assumption that I have about life and existence? See, I happen to believe that when God wakes you up in the morning, God wakes you up 
fully intent on putting someone in your path that day for you to love. And some days it's great, some days it's fun, some days it's so easy because God will put somebody on your path that looks exactly like you and, and sounds exactly like you. You have the same songs on your playlist, you, you think the same way, you feel the same, you believe the same convictions, right? Maybe you even vote the same way. And on college game day, you root for the same team, you wear the same colors, and on those days, you're like, yep, God, you got it. I'm going to love you by loving the people you love, and thank you for putting these people on my path, and you know who they are. You can name them by name right now. But mixed in between all of them, standing between them and behind them, are others who look nothing like you who think nothing like you, who believe nothing like you. Maybe they're part of another religion or maybe no religion whatsoever. Maybe they even voted for the other person. And on college game day, how could they possibly wear those colors, you know? And God has mixed those people in the very path that he has mixed your favorite people. And God says, these all are my children. If you want to love me, love me by loving who I love. So that's the first truth. We love God by loving who God loves. But here is a second truth I want us to think on, I want us to live with, that we also love God by loving how God loves. By loving how God loves. And how does God love? Like a neighbor. Like a neighbor. One of the most beautiful passages in Holy Scripture comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And in that passage, the writer is attempting to to wrap some words around this great mystery of what in the world has just happened in this person we call Jesus. And so he understands that most of his audience believes in this kind of philosophy called the divine logos, the divine logos, or the word, which was just kind of a prevalent idea that, well, what's holding the universe together? Some idea, some unifying principle or or philosophy out there. We're going to call it the divine word. And so John reaches into that very um, relevant cultural image and says, yes, there you go. Do you want to know what's happening in Jesus? The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. It's just gorgeous. It's a powerful way to understand how the the, the divinity of God is now visible in us and among us and in the person of Jesus Christ. But I also love what Eugene Peterson does with that very same passage, the passage that says uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the word took on flesh and bone and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that great? Do you know how I interpret that? God's not here to visit. God has come to you not to visit, but to move into the mess of your life. To move into the chaos, the unpredictable chaos of your life. 
God is here to stay and is going nowhere regardless of what you go through. That's how God loves. And every image that's coming out of Houston and every image that's coming out of South Texas that I see on on the television is for me a parable this week because as you see people wading out chest deep in waters, waters that who knows what in the world is, is crawling around inside there, wading out chest deep to pull in the vulnerable to rescue not just the vulnerable, but even the strong. But each story is a story of an individual or a group of individuals deciding, we will take the risk of coming near you and stepping into the uncertainty of these rising waters because that's what love compels us to do. And when I see these images all week long, I'm thinking about what another writer says, Ken Geyer. He's trying to put words around what's going on with Jesus when Jesus shows up. You know what he said? That in Jesus Christ, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity. This is how God loves. God steps into the warm lake of humanity. In the warm lake of your own humanity, whatever's in your water, No matter how high it seems to be rising, whatever unpredictable chaos it may be uh, creating in your life, God has chosen to step into the unpredictable, warm waters of your own humanity. And when we are called to love God, and if loving God means we love not just who God loves, but how God loves, it means that you and I are called to step into the warm lake of somebody else's humanity. What would it look like for you today? What would it require of you to step into the warm lake of someone else's humanity because it will be messy, it will be chaotic, you won't know what to expect. But my question is, how else would you possibly love a neighbor? We think we know our neighbors. We define them in a variety of limited ways. I mean, we know where our neighbors go to school and and where they work and what they drive, and we know that that particular one leaves his garbage can down on the street like three days past trash day. But do you know your neighbors? Do you know what makes them afraid? Do you know where their deepest scar or wound Do you know what makes them come alive? Do you know what it is that feels electric and alive in them? Because that may be the the very place where God is attempting to rise up in them, you know? The only way you can know it, however, the only way I can know it is to take the risk of stepping into the warm lake of somebody else's humanity. But isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Is that not why the church exists? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and to love our neighbors to the extent that we will wade out into the chaotic waters of their own humanity. So a while back, I I heard Brian McLaren uh, speak at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and one of the the provocative uh, thoughts that he brought to the conversation was this. He said, I believe that in the 21st century, the church 
will not be defined the way it has been defined before. The church and the success of the church will certainly not be defined the way success was defined in the church uh, in ages past. It won't be by how many people come on Sunday, how big is your budget, how many buildings do you have on campus. Those will not be the measures of success in the 21st century. The measure of success in this post-Christendom era, this post-Christian era, is will your church be known as an academy of love. An academy of love that turns people into more loving versions of themselves. Now, beloved, I can tell you, that's a church that I'd want to be a part of, right? Where you show up at church and you know that when you leave, you will be challenged to the extent that you become more loving versions of yourself. And I think that is why we are here. So I want to issue one challenge and then we're done. I want to call this challenge the One Neighbor Challenge. In the month of September, the One Neighbor Challenge, I want every one of us to pray about who God has put in your path and you love that one person lavishly all month long. Don't go and get overzealous and try to love the whole world because, you know, yeah, that sounds great on a postcard. But you don't change the world by loving everybody. You change the world by loving somebody. And then another somebody. And then another somebody. What would it look like for you and your family to conspire together to radically love one neighbor all month long? And hey, if they happen to come to church because of it, great. But can I be honest? I don't even care as much about that. Because the bigger point is not where they go to church. The bigger point is that you have become a more loving version of you and found faithful in obeying our Lord. Let's pray together. Most glorious and loving God. God, we recognize that all of the words that we could muster would fall terribly short of being able to articulate what you mean to us. You, you're everything. Sometimes we don't act like it, but you are. You're everything. Sometimes we, we bend before other thrones that are far less worthy than you, but you're everything. But we know today that we can't say that to you without backing that up with how we love our brother and sister just right around the corner. Will you make of us, even this day, more loving versions of ourselves? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.